You are listening to The Local Maximum, episode 290. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Feeling good this, uh, this Tuesday night here in August, where it's still light out, so very nice. Um, all right, what are we going to talk about today? Remember uh, just how optimistic we used to be about the future of technology. Um, that's that era certainly predates this podcast. Probably, uh, you know, is around 2010 to 2013. It's amazing how pessimistic we were about the economy in 2008, 2009, uh, but how optimistic we were uh, about technology. You know, in, in the early part of the 2010s, I think a lot of that was because of the mobile revolution, um, and some of it. Let's be fair. Some of it was uh, was because of low interest rates, and we got to fund all these cool companies like Foursquare, where I got to work. And and some of them some of them were good things, but maybe some of them uh, some of them went over the top. Uh, you know, by the time I started this podcast, uh, and, and I, I would like to go back to some of my early episodes to to see what I said exactly. But I know that I was already saying, man, uh, some of these things that uh, have not lived up to its promise. I think actually, if I can go onto the archive, localmaxradio.com slash archive in the middle of a, in the middle of recording this, if I could go into one of the early ones, I bet it's the one about, you know what, virtual friends and enemies, episode 12. That is a, uh, uh, an, uh, um, an often overlooked episode of the Local Maximum where I spoke to uh, um, our uh, product manager, Marissa Chaco at Foursquare, um, about how, you know, sometimes, uh, uh, you know, sometimes products are not built uh, with the user in mind. And so, uh, actually, I'm going to post to that one um, because uh, that is kind of straddles the um, techno-optimism, pe- uh, techno-pessimism divide um, and also, that one needs to get a little more attention because it's uh, uh, because it's uh, 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 you know that was episode twelve, folks. I mean, you know, yes, a lot of people go back and listen to zero one two, but not that many people were listening at the time, so twelve doesn't get the the attention it deserves. And I, I, if I remember correctly, it was a long time ago, but Marissa was great in that one. So I think we're too pessimistic today. I think there's a tendency to have a, a boom and a bust cycle with these things, and I'm going to review. Uh, an interesting book that um, that I read recently. Uh, I read it on the on the plane over to over to France. Uh, I had time for that, um, and that was uh, uh, written in an earlier time. And sometimes it's helpful to to listen to what people were were writing in an earlier time. And I've also had this book on my shelf for like two years, and I finally got around to it. So that's great. Uh, so first, let's review Strauss Howe generational theory. Yeah, yeah, this is one of those episodes. Strauss Howe generational theory. Uh, that is the theory about the cycles of history, uh, which, when undisturbed, uh, the kind of uh, personalities of the different generations. It doesn't mean everyone your age has the same personalities, but, you know, there's a certain uh, type of attitude and a certain type of approach to life. Um, maybe you could think of it as, as a probability distribution over attitudes and over approaches to life. And that probability distribution changes um, as different generations come and go. And it doesn't just change randomly. I mean, maybe sometimes it changes randomly, but it seems like, you know, you have a generation lasting maybe 20 years. You think that um, maybe 25 years, um, you know, at, at, at most. And you think there are four 
four and a half generations around at any given time. And so the adult generations, they kind of imprint um, their, uh, their outlooks on the younger generations, but they don't just make a carbon copy of themselves in the younger generations. I mean, you know, in some ways they do. You know, they, 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 they teach us and then they, you know, they, they, they put us through schools and whatever. But the younger generations are going to observe the world they're going to observe what's going on around them, and they're going to pick and choose what to pick out of that, and they're going to kind of react to that. And so the idea is that uh, you know the, the the generations who are alive affects the generations who are who are so-called youngsters, and then um, this, for some reason, causes a four uh, a, a four stage cycle where every lifetime about, you know, it's not that you can't live more than four generations. Plenty of people have lived five generations. Some people have even lived six generations. But um, uh, uh, the, the fact is that um, the, the, the generations making the imprinting are the, the three generations above, and then they make a, a, they make a kind of a copy, or, or not a carbon copy, but a, but a, a similar generation to the one that's, that's just above them. So why, why is this? Why is this? What, and what, why are there four cycles and, um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, and why is it, you know, kind of, uh, um, th- th- they kind of make an analogy to the seasons. And I think it's a good analogy, you know, like uh, spring. And, and the seasons are not the four generations, but the four patterns that you get you know, during the different time periods. So like, you know, the four generations have archetypal, archetypical names, like for example, the millennial generation, we're a hero generation. Hell yeah, we're the heroes. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, when the hero generation are at young adulthood, uh, that means that you're in a crisis. Um, you know, and when the, uh, when the artist generation is in adulthood. It's, uh, it's there's there's a, a first turning, uh, which we're going to talk about today, uh, which is the high, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So why are these twelve seasons of of uh, why are there these four seasons of history? Um, and I think, uh, well, look back to why there are four seasons. You know, the season that it is, you know, it's because of the the tilt of the Earth. But you'll know, forgive me if I'm not being too specific on this. I haven't looked at my astronomy in a long time, and so it depends upon. Uh, where the Earth is in its cycle around the sun. Um, so the Earth makes, and you know, if you can think of it, the Earth makes a circle, an oval around the sun. Um, and it's very natural, interestingly enough, to divide a circle into four pieces. You might think, you know, why, why is it natural to divide a circle into four pieces? You could divide a circle into any number of pieces, and it's very even. Uh, but the fact is that, you know, a circle is a, a two-dimensional object, um, and, uh, you know, it, it, uh, if you think of a unit circle, it kind of, you know, goes through, uh, if you think of like a, uh, a, a semicircle, uh, above a line and then another semicircle, the other half below the line. So there's like two halves there. And then if you think there's a vertical line, the, the Y axis, there's, there's two halves there. And so there's, you're either positive and negative on the x-axis or positive and negative on the y-axis, and so that makes four possibilities. There's positive-positive, positive-negative, negative-negative, negative-positive. Um, so I think two-dimensional objects make four, like, it's, it's, it's reasonable to divide them, or natural, I guess, to divide them up into four parts. And what makes, what makes these circles 
you know, what, what, why, why does the uh, Earth, let's say, uh, go in a circle around the sun? Let's, let's call it a circle. It's because the, um, the laws of gravity create these differential equations um, or are described by these differential equations um, that, that create, create circles. Those are the same differential equations that create springs, that create, uh, that create sine waves, so on and so forth. And so I think that something very similar is happening with the generations. You know, um, you know one differential equation might be on the, uh, you know, on, 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 the, uh, on the measure of how, uh, how open a, sci- a society is to new ideas. And then maybe if society is more open to new ideas, that imprints something on the new generation that kind of dampens that. If society is too close to new ideas, that sort of imprints something on the new generation to try to open it again. And so you don't kind of go into a black hole on either side of, uh, of openness or closeness. You have some sort of oscillating system. So that's one way to think about Strauss' generational theory. I'm not sure exactly. I was kind of thinking about this the other day. I'm not sure exactly how I would set up these differential equations, some people call it like, you know, oh, are you going to be radical? Or are you going to be moderate? Um, that's kind of a 40-year cycle, it seems. Um, although, <laughs> interestingly enough, the seasons are also uh, radical, moderate in like a 180-year cycle. You could think of like, uh, you know, spring and, and fall as moderate, uh, but uh, winter and summer as as radical. Uh, you know, and, and so... But what, what, what are the actual differential equations? That's a good question. Is it openness and, and closedness? Or is it, um, uh, um, is it kind of forward thinking or backward thinking? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Uh, so I, I kind of want to look at that more, especially as I got, um, you know, Neil Howe's new book, uh, The Fourth Turning is Here. But I didn't want to bring that big, thick, nice new book that I uh, brought to Barnes & Noble. I didn't want to bring that on the, on the train and ruin it. I mean, even this this other book, the first turning that I got by Carol Angler. That's what we're going to talk in a bit. I brought it on the train with on the, the train to France, the plane to France, and uh, you know it got a little bend in here. So I don't like any bends in my books. Uh, so uh, so I didn't want to bring that one, but I was able to kind of brush up on some some someone who's thinking about this topic, uh, and and and. And, and get through it. So how came out with his book, The Fourth Turning is Here. I want to read through it. I, I Honestly, I want to have him on the show. I'll, I haven't reached out yet. I, I hope that, uh, I hope he'd be open to it. I know he's going to, going on, on some podcasts. Maybe he'll go on uh, this little show, The Local Maximum. Uh, but in the meantime, I read this book, The First Turning, A Vision of America and a World at Peace. This is by Dr. Carol Angler, uh, uh, 2013, uh, a professional in the field of education over three decades, um, and she talks a lot about her kind of educational outlook in there a bunch. I mean, it's almost, and it was written in 2013, it was almost a time capsule to the way people were thinking 10 years ago. Um, and I think that the author made one major mistake, which is like the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the thesis of the book, but she made a major mistake in prognostication um, uh, but otherwise, I think it was worth reading for me. Uh, it was a quick read, and I got some really interesting ideas from it. Uh, so why don't we get the misprognostication out of the way first? Uh, this is what I think happened. Uh, the author, Dr. Engler, claims that the first turning uh, is going to come sooner this year. Uh, it's kind of like the groundhog, or we're going to have a, uh, a short winter. Uh, so she says, uh, the first turning will come sooner, sooner this year, not this year, this uh <laughs> 
<laughs> this I think I think it was called the the saculum or the saculum in, in the book, like the the not the turning, but the four turnings together, like the whole cycle. Uh, so she claims the first turnings would come sooner in this cycle because of the acceleration in technology that we're seeing is going to accelerate the timeline. Now I think it's pretty clear this didn't happen. You know, clearly um, Neil Howe, without reading his book, I only read the title. The fourth turning is here. And the book came out in 2023, so clearly he didn't uh, think that this happened. Uh, but it's a common misconception, I think, about the turnings. And I think I've heard this before, and I think this is, um, this is something to, to keep in mind when you talk about technology predictions and social predictions. Uh, when I first started The Local Maximum, I, uh, the show, I was making technology predictions. I've always been interested in technology predictions. And we did our first tech retreat in 2015. That was in the winter of 2015, and Aaron came out to... Uh, we, we we met up in a um, uh, in a uh, one of those uh, one of those cabins upstate, and it was like ten below. Uh, we were predicting the future of technology. We're talking about uh, Ray Kurzweil and accelerating returns. And I I thought I I kept thinking, man, I would love to predict social trends, but I just can't. I just don't have the framework for it. Strauss and Howe gave me that framework to some degree. Uh, so I think this is a misconception of the turnings that people often link them to um, the rate of change in society, the rate of technological change, and um, you know the rate of change in society, particularly technological change, but other changes as well, certainly has been increasing. It's been accelerating, and you know we've seen that with uh, uh, well, first the mobile revolution, and and then we've seen that with I think. Crypto and Web3, and, and we've seen that with AI, with uh, generative AI, ChatGPT recently. It's changing so fast. But if we go back to the 1997 book, Strauss and Howe point out that the social moods of the generations aren't really linked to the rate of growth in technology. Uh, it's really more a change in the focus of how the technology is used and disseminated in that day. So for example, uh, in a fourth turning like today, you might be more likely to see censorship and propaganda. We're, we're getting there for sure. Uh, we're getting that for sure. Uh, in the third turning, it's kind of everything goes. And for those of you who remember the internet in the 90s, I kind of got the tail end of the internet in the 90s, but I certainly had the internet, you know, in the 2000s. Uh, it was really anything goes. It was a wild place. People could, could do whatever they want. You go on uh, uh, Napster, uh, before those all got shut down. Around, I think LimeWire was shut down when? 2010, 2011? That's an interesting story, actually. I remember I had like uh, one uh, recruiter, because I was in NYU at the time, and he was like, I got this really cool company. It's something you've heard of, and you should go work there. It's like a name that everyone knows, so you should go work there. I was like, all right, sure. I'm interested. He's like, you know, he's like, so would you like to hear it? Because once you hear it, there's something about these recruiters where like, you know, if they tell you, then like they get the credit for it or whatever. It didn't matter in this case. And he's like, I was like, okay, okay, go ahead. I'll, I'll sign your thing. You tell me. He's like, it's LimeWire. And I was like, all right, cool. It was one of those sharing technology. You remember like, uh, like Napster. Uh, oh, I, people in the future are listening to this or people very young listening to this. There used to be these, uh, these um, P2P file sharing uh, 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 software products online. And you could just kind of, uh, download all sorts of things from all sorts of people. Like, you know, you could download music, you could download movies. Uh, you didn't have to pay for any of that. <laughs> so uh, apparently a bunch of people decided that was wrong. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, so 
uh, you know, I remember the recruiter was so excited and he told me about this, uh, this opportunity as if I would jump up for joy. And I kind of was like, sure, whatever, you know, cause I know that even if the tech is cool, like, you know, a lot of companies are kind of grinds to work for us. I was like, let's hear more. And then I remember like, so I didn't think much of it. And then I remember the same recruiter called me back a few months later and he was like, Hey, it's a good thing I didn't get you this. Sorry, uh, you know the line wire shut down. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, but anyway, uh, that I, hey, bad for LimeWire. You know, something not similar, but but um, similar in the sense of government shutting them down. So it happened to uh, Library or Library Inc. earlier this year. They're still library. They're still a library token. They're still an Odyssey. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, but that just goes to show how uh, back in the third turning. Uh, this um, anything goes software was more tolerated than today in the first turning, uh, in the fourth turning. So, um, yeah. So, uh, it 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 doesn't really matter how fast the rate of change is in technology. Whatever the technological level is at at the time, the social moods of the day will uh, direct how that technology is used. So if anything, I think that we're going to see the cycle, the Strauss House cycle elongate, not shorten. I think it's going to take longer because the older generations are living longer and longer. Uh, you know, we're, we're supposed to be done with the silent generation. Um, even our president is kind of, I don't know, is he a boomer? He's half boomer, half, half silent. He's a silent boomer. Uh, that means it'll take more young people to grow up and to change the social mood. So uh, Dr. Engler predicted the first turning will happen in about 2015. Uh, in reality, she's writing in 2013. She kind of saw the, the fourth turning as being 2008 to 2013. I think that the cycle has elongated. And I think, I, I'm pretty sure Strauss and House still say that um, 2008 is, is when it started. But I think that, that 2013, and I think a lot of people, you know, if you think about it, uh, yeah, trust me, a lot of people agree with me. I don't know. I'm, I'm curious. I think people would agree with me uh, that 2013 is when we saw these huge cultural shifts. So um, I, 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 think, uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, Dr. Engler predicts, hey, this is, the end, uh, this is the end of the fourth turning. I was like, nah, we're just getting started, <laughs> unfortunately. We're, we're still, uh, you were just watching the final throws of the... Uh, of the uh, of, of of the third turning. I mean, that's how I see a lot of Foursquare technology today. Unfortunately, <laughs> like that that I was working on in in 2011, 2012. It was like people were like, "What? You're just gonna check in and and you're gonna uh, you know like like how could you how could you have an app that's that's fun and it's like yeah, it's the third turning. We can do whatever we want. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, um, but uh, we we still very much saw the the internet as a place where you know it was your uh, it was your was your adult uh, was your adult playground? I probably shouldn't say that. It was your it was your your playgrounds to to do whatever you wanted. But uh, by by 2014, not so much. So uh, that said, I think that uh, Angler talks. The, the main focus of the book is how technology will bring about an early first turning. But I don't think we should throw out the book because I think that the book. Um, allows us to kind of, uh, gives us kind of a framework in thinking about how the technology of our day will be used by the upcoming first turning, perhaps in the 2030s or the 2040s, 
maybe even the late 2020s. We'll see. So, so what is a first turning? That's the, that's the next one. Uh, how does Howe describe the first turning? I hope he covers it in his new book. I'll, I'll read it. Uh, so uh, on the pro side, uh, they, they describe it, the first turning, as if there's like a new civic order in place. This is like the 1950s, or this is kind of the, the gilded age in, in America in the late 1800s, where uh, you know Reconstruction is over. Uh, unfortunately, all of the, you know, inequality and, and Jim Crow that it was coming up uh, uh, um, that was kind of left over after the Civil War that, that wasn't fixed. That doesn't get fixed in a first turning because you don't fix big issues in the first turning. So that's a downside. But there's a new civic order in place. I think once Reconstruction ended in the United States, for example, um, you know, the threat of Civil War, like people didn't know in the, in the, in the 1870s whether the Civil War was going to start again. You know, it's very scary. Uh, so I think by the by the by the end of Reconstruction, by 1877, it was like, nope, we're good. There's not going to be a civil war. Uh, so there's a new civic order in place. People aren't constantly trying to undermine each other's points of view. Power isn't constantly trying to undermine power. But at the same side, at the same time, there's sort of these bounds in place that are in the middle of the road. Um, and so, eh, you get kind of like a, you you get kind of a, a boredom. Perhaps so. They describe it as a time when people start taking more risks again. So that's a good thing. But there's a sense. They also say that the sense of shame is at its its highest, and society becomes very conservative. So I assume that means that people start taking economic risks again, but they take less social risks. It seems like people have become a bit numb after the crisis, and they don't want to fight. They just want to live their life, it seems. So, and sometimes they have to fight anyway, <laughs> because because uh, sometimes first turnings do have wars, but they're kind of they're kind of echo wars, as they as they call them. So, I think uh, Dr. Engler, um, when calling for a first turning, she's sort of using it as a device to point to the positive attributes of the first turning, and I think that means more investment in, and better community. So, it's investment in community and more sort of uh, a civic attitude. So I, I kind of look at it that way. So back back to that book, back to the first turning. There was a lot about social media starting revolutions uh, via the Arab Spring. Uh, but notice this is only happening in one part of the world. You know, the social media did not create uh, revolutions uh, here in the West, here in the U.S. Um, and so uh, it was used in campaigns, but, you know, pretty predictably uh, when looking back. So um, and this only happened just before this book was published in 2013. So yes, social media led to social change. But today, in many ways, particularly in, in around 2019, 2020, it became a, a reactionary force. But there are some bright spots today in social media that can be pointed to as maybe not so influential today, but might be influential 10 years down the line, or even five years down the line. First is the uh, decentralized social networks that we're seeing. Uh, one that I'm looking into recently is uh, Jack Dorsey's Blue Sky, uh, because that is technically decentralized. I know I had uh, Jeremy Kaufman on the program. Now I've got to look up, uh, I've got to look up again where I had Jeremy Kaufman. He was the CEO of Library at the time, or, or Odyssey, um, and, uh, and, and, and Library, which was doing decentralized video. Again, they... Um, they ran into some totally unjustified legal troubles, uh, but uh, with the SEC. But um, still, that, that's that's a that's a piece of tech, and I looked into it. 
Uh, it was a really cool piece of tech, and that was a piece of tech that, uh, that kind of inspires me. So there's the idea of these centralized social networks. There's alternative social networks, too, um, that are kind of uh, – uh, that, that uh, kind of had to provide uh, some arena where people who are being censored in the mainstream had to go. Uh, and there were a lot of false starts on that. So, for example, uh, let me go back to – um, I have an idea. Decentralizing Before Our Eyes, Exit 153. That was the episode that came out just after um, Parler was censored. Uh, it was a social network that was censored by Amazon shutting down their servers. It seems like um, that kind of spurred people into action. So that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, that, that, like, next time this happens, I, I feel like... Um, I feel like some of these marginalized groups will be prepared or, um, you know, it'll be some some larger company like like Rumble or something that is involved. So they're going to have a, a much better workaround. So. Um, so, yeah, I, I think so. We have some of these decentralized social networks. We have these alternative social networks. We have Elon Musk buying Twitter, which is a really big deal uh, because. Uh, and man, I have so many episodes on that too. Uh, episode, uh, let's go back to it. Episode 250, The Bird Flips. That's a pretty good number, 250. Got to figure out what to do about my, uh, my 300th episode. Um, and so he kind of exposed a lot of what the trust and safety of Twitter had done and, and, and what, what, what the government had done with, with social media. And that's why people don't like Musk these days. And then there's, you know, I think there's a lot of changes with people working on Web 3.0 and the metaverse. And we're kind of see how that, how that plays out. That's still kind of up in the air. But again, it's how technology is used. And I think I see in these technologies, these are not going to save us tomorrow. These are not going to come by overnight. But this is the type of technology that might be used in a, in a, a first turning where it's not everything goes and, and there are guardrails, but there's also some like relief valve as well, where you could have different communities and, um, you know, not be, uh, not go crazy where, where somebody disagrees with you on the internet. Or you could still go crazy if someone disagrees with you on the internet, but you're not going to be able to like shut them all down. Um, so you might be able to shut them out of your life, but you might not be able to shut them all down. Um, and another thing, so, okay, so that's, so that's one of the things about, about social media. So this is the perfect example of what Strauss and Howard are talking about in, in 97, where it's not what the technology is. It's not the technology affects society. It's society affects how the technology is used. Another thing she mentions are a, a lot, uh, I think it's because of her background in education, is the uh, massive open online courses. She mentions the machine learning course with Andrew Ng, which I watched, which is, so it's interesting that, uh, that the field of machine learning is actually at the forefront of this, where you could go on to these websites. That was at Stan Stanford. I know Yale, my alma mater, mater had, uh, had a bunch of open courses at Yale, open, open, open courses at Yale. You also remember there was uh, services like Coursera and Udemy, people that used to talk about this a lot then. We were very, very hopeful about that tech 10 years ago. Today, I feel, I feel like we realized we got into a funk uh, because these are not talked about enough. I think we, we realized that with social media, we have uh, uh, these casino-like products really winning out over these educational products. Maybe that's inevitable. I hope not. But it really is a shame. Um, but we're, 
we, we we're still hopefully open to the possibility of of having AI that could teach us interactively. So maybe in the 2030s, maybe we'll have another look at these products as real vehicles for learning and not just like you know uh, not just the um, not just our online services for vehicles for propaganda, whether it be uh, whether it be political propaganda or corporate propaganda or you know. Try, trying to, uh, I'm not just talking about like propaganda where they're they're trying to like, you know, uh, sell you on a on a on a way to live or like or, or like a political view, but also uh, adv- advertising as propaganda, uh, which uh, you know, which I don't like. I, I kind of was maybe I should do a whole episode on this. I'm kind of watching some old uh, ads the other day and how like oh they just want you to make associations with their ads, the positive things, and that's a good thing. But I don't know. Uh, there's a certain way to do it that's that's kind of nasty. Uh, well, we'll see what. Um, <laughs> I don't really have very clear thoughts on on these advertising, but but I kind of put that in the in the uh, in the bucket of they're trying to convince me of something that's not necessarily in my interest. So, what does the first turning have in store? Uh, if I ever get a chance to talk to Neil Howe, I will certainly ask this. I will certainly look for it in the book. When I read it, uh, we have to understand that the first turning isn't necessarily a good thing. You could get good things done in the fourth turning that you can't done in the first turn. Uh, the fourth turning is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, both have their ups and downs. Uh, but if their theory is correct, and they were pretty good at predicting the fourth turning uh, in the third turning from 97. Um, so if if they're correct, society should get a bit more orderly. The divisive social movements that you see today that can just be nuts at time. I mean, maybe depending on what side you are, you think the other side is nuts. But those divisive social movements will go away. But kind of the collectivism will not. So if I were to pin some hopes on it, I would hope that we would place more value on long-term investments, as we should now. Uh, that includes education, software, energy investments, government, et cetera, science. If I were concerned, I think that freedom of speech and thought might not be able to be fully restored in the first turning. So that would suck. So if anything, perhaps we can hope for these things to get restored, but with guardrails of like decorum, replacing guardrails of content. I don't think it's going to be um, a free-for-all like the, like the 90s or whatever. Uh, but this all might be too much to ask for. Uh, let's hope that we get some of it. All right. So I'm also reading, and this this also has to do with Donald Hoffman, The Case Against Reality. I was going to say that also has to do with advertising, interestingly enough. (laughs) The Case Against Reality, it's philosophy, it's physics, a little bit of advertising in that book. It's pretty cool. Uh, So I'm looking forward to finishing that. And then I'll start Neil Howe's book. Um, And today we have got a special segment. And now, the probability distribution of the week. It's probably not it's probably not surprising to you that it's a probability distribution of the week that's the only segment we have so far. Maybe I should start making other segments because I th- feel like we are almost done with the segment of probability distribution of the week, but this is going to be a good one today. Um, it's a little complicated. It's a little bit of a complicated distribution. So I'm not going to I'm not going to draw out the equation. I'm just going to try to talk about a little bit w- how I think about it and um, why it's why it's interesting to me. So this is the Wizhart distribution, 
or the inverse Wishart distribution. You know, there, there are several ways of looking at it. When you have a normal distribution, like a, like a symmetric curve, then, um, you know, hey, it's the same going up the hill and it's the same going down the hill. But if you have a distribution that's not the same going up the hill as the same going down the hill, then you have an inverse version of that. Um, so the inverse uh, Wishart distribution or the regular uh, Wishart distribution, um, that is a, a distribution on vectors. Of, well, what is it a distribution on? It's interesting. Uh, it, it's hard to describe, and so maybe I'll, I'll get to it <laughs> in, in a little bit. Um, but uh, uh, um, it's it's a it's a distribution over a, a matrix, which is crazy enough. It's a, a distribution over a, a, a positive definite matrix. Huh? Well, what does that mean? I'm not going to define that for you, but I'm gonna uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna try to um, try to uh, show you what direction this is going in. So today's distribution is going to be hard. It will require you to think multidimensionally, but it has a pretty cool use, which I'll show you. So let's review some of our previous probability distributions. First, we have the normal probability distribution. So for those of you, hopefully you have some background in probability. If you're listening to the podcast, some of you don't. So, you know, this, this might be, you might have just come for the fourth turning stuff. But we have a, we have a normal distribution which is like the normal one you get. It's like kind of a, a bell curve. There's a, you know, there's there's that middle where everyone is, and then there's the uh, outliers to the right and the outliers to the left. And for those of you who do even very basic statistics, it has a mean, it has an average, a center, and it has a standard deviation, which kind of measures how far away the data is from the mean. And you can estimate this mean and standard deviation from the data. So the mean is just to just take the average of that data. And for the standard deviation, there's kind of a formula for it. Um, something like, you know, squared distances. Uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not going to. Uh, but that's, that's the observed mean and the standard deviation of your, of your data set. It doesn't tell you how well you know those values. So, for example, um, it, if I know I have a normally distributed data and I get 20 pieces of information and I take the normal, that's my observed mean. That might not be the mean that I'm pulling from. Uh, and it probably is not. Uh, so there's a difference between observed and actual. So uh, we don't know those values from the data, even if that distribution is, is normal. And, and for that, you need a, a mathematical tool. And you guessed it, Bayesian inference. We always talk about this program. So you picked some distribution over the mean. You're, you, you start with no data. But you take a guess as to what the mean is. And that guess comes in the form of probability distribution. Oh, I have some belief about where the mean lies. It could be some very uninformed prior. And then you take some distribution over the standard deviation as well, which is a positive number. Uh, so it has to be some kind of distribution that works over positive numbers, like let's say the gamma distribution. And then you have those update as you collect more data. And you know what you get over time is a distribution of all possible normal curves. So let, let, let's talk about the standard deviation a little bit. Um, usually the standard deviation is, is the one that's used um, in mathematics. It's, you know, the, it's, uh, it's denoted by the Greek letter sigma. It's not really the natural value. So there's also something called the variance, um, which is the square of the standard deviation. Um, interestingly enough, in like 
so many of the formulas in mathematics, when you have standard deviation, it's always sigma squared, sigma squared, sigma squared. Well, guess what? <laughs> they, you might be talking about the variance, and then it would just be variance, variance, variance. Uh, so for some reason, um, um, uh, standard deviation is used more often than variance. And then there's something else called the precision, which is one over the variance, the inverse of the variance. And this might be even more natural than the variance. Um, so uh, so um, the, the, the precision, if you think about the variance, if you have a very high variance, then that means that um, data can be very far away from the mean. But if you have a very high precision, precise, that means that the data is very close to the mean. If you have a very low precision, that means the data is all over the place and you don't know where it's going to go. So um, interestingly enough, if you want to get a conjugate prior for uh, the standard deviation, you really should use the precision. And you should really get a, stand, uh, a conjugate prior over the precision. Conjugate prior, for those of you who are uninitiated Bayesians, means that, um, uh, let's just say that... Um, it's very easy to, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's probability distributions that are very easy to work with mathematically. Let's just say that. So uh, it's interesting that the, that, that, that the uh, conjugate prior over the precision is the gamma distribution, which we've covered before. That's a distribution on positive numbers. And so usually when you set these things up, you place a, uh, a, a distribution over the precision, and the distribution is the gamma. So... Um, we have a gamma distribution over the precision, and over the mean, we actually put another normal distribution over the mean as what we think the mean is, but this time it is a very wide, a very wide variance, very low precision over that one. There's two precision. There's the precision over the, over the distribution you think you're measuring, and then there's the precision over your belief as to what the mean is. So two very different things. Um, we collect lots of data, and uh, if you collect lots of data, uh, eventually you'll estimate some normal curve, and that won't change very much, but the, the, your, your normal curve representing the belief over the mean of that normal curve becomes very, very, very small and tight, uh, almost like a Dirac distribution approaching it. Um, so, um, okay, if that makes sense. So uh, we have a normal distribution over the mean, a gamma distribution over the precision. That's the same as having an inverse gamma distribution over the variance. With me so far? Maybe not. All right, but does this generalize to higher dimensions? Guess what? It does. So remember that, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in a single-dimensional Gaussian, that's normal distribution, you basically have uh, the standard deviation is two points. You have one standard deviation below the mean, one standard deviation below, uh, above the mean, and you have like 60-something percent of all the data in the middle. That's that middle chunk. Well, when you... Um, when you generalize two dimensions, that standard deviation is no longer range. It's like an oval. And then three dimensions, it's some like warped spherical shape around where the data is. And this is instead of one, uh, um, instead of one number representing the variance, now you have something called the variance matrix, the covariance matrix. And because, uh, you know, uh, it's not just like you have, uh, like data is going near and far to the mean. Uh, it could be near and far in different dimensions. It could be like in one dimension, the data is really close to the mean. In another dimension, the data is really far from the mean. Or it could mean that, or it could be like, you know, 
could, the oval could be turned, so it could be, it's like far from the mean along this line, but not along that line, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of different ways, there's a lot more ways to, to configure it. There's a lot more parameters when you have a multivariable Gaussian. And so two-dimensional, you could think of it as some oval, three-dimensional, some like warped spherical shape. And so this is, instead of the variance, you get the covariance matrix and, um, um, the variance matrix is always has a property. It can't be any old matrix. It has to be symmetric because the covariance between um, dimension A and dimension B is the same as the covariance between dimension B and dimension A. And it's also positive semi-definite. It's got positive numbers in it. We don't have to get into that. Um, uh, and so, of course, there's precision as well, which is just the, the inverse of the variance. So that's also a positive uh, semi-definite matrix. So it turns out, there was a really great distribution over positive uh, definite matrices that can be used in this case. Uh, it's over positive definite, but the matrices are semi-definite. Let's not even try to, the details, details, details. So anyway, that great distribution is the Wishart distribution. Um, the normal Wishart is the conjugate prior over the mean and precision of a multivariate normal. The normal inverse Wishart is the conjugate over the mean variance of the multivariate normal. So what does this all mean practically? Let's take a step back. How can we use this? Imagine that we're gathering a lot of data, and all of this data has many dimensions. Um, and we can compute, you know, uh, we can compute a, a Gaussian for it. We can compute like um, a, a multidimensional normal distribution. Great, just like we can normally. We have the mean and we have the variance. There's a formula for it, and we can kind of figure out what that is. Observed, great. But better yet, better yet than looking at the observed distribution, we can compute the normal Wishart distribution over all possible Gaussians and then sample from that. And that would be so much better because then we'll know what to expect for future data. It's like, okay, do I really know this data very well or do I not know it so well? And that would answer that question. So the observed data doesn't take into account how few data we've collected. If we've only collected a few points, then you don't really know where the mean and the standard deviation is. And this problem gets much, much, much worse with higher dimensions. It becomes a larger and larger problem, the curse of dimensionalities. This is much more important in the multidimensional case. So I would love to use this, uh, this system. I haven't actually used it in any of my models yet, but I, I'm, I'm sure you could do it in PyMC3, PyMC4. I'd love to see examples. Anyone out there use it? I'd like to know the, uh, the uh, inverse Wishart distribution or the Wishart distribution. Uh, have you used it to estimate uh, a normal distribution. I would like to know. All right, that's some advanced grad school type stuff. So I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that you stuck around with me for that. Um, other than that, what are we gonna do in the next couple of weeks? I know uh, Aaron is uh, off on a trip. I'm not sure, I don't remember where he went this time, but when he comes back, I'm gonna start, uh, I'm gonna start lobbying him to do another news update because I know we need to do that, and we need to also go over, uh, you know, more and more about this new constitution that I'm writing. Uh, I know we did three episodes on it, but, like, uh, I changed a lot since then. It's really interesting to build these things, because I feel like you don't really appreciate the constitutions and, and, and even, even corporations until you, like, try to make the rules yourself. Uh, so I changed my mind on a few things, so maybe we'll go over that. That's, that was always very interesting to do. Maybe a news update. Um, 
and certainly all these books I'm reading that I've told you about before, uh, uh, including um, the uh, uh, Case Against Reality and hopefully the, the fourth turning soon. Let's see if I can get some of the authors on. I don't know. All right. Remember to join the locals, maximum.locals.com, particularly if you really like what we do here. Um, and uh, that's all I have to, for today. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support the local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and their online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.